From New York, this is Democracy Now! The Democrats' principal failure in election after election that they should have landslided prevails today. They don't know how to talk to blue-collar workers. With the midterm elections two weeks away, we speak with former Green Party presidential candidate Ralph Nader. He's warning Democrats may lose control of the House and Senate by failing to connect to voters on the economy and other key issues. We'll also speak with Mark Green, the former public advocate of New York City. Then we look at China as Xi Jinping begins a historic third term as head of the Chinese Communist Party. In the face of new challenges and tests on the new journey, we must be highly vigilant, always maintain the sobriety and prudence to catch up with the examinations, and promote the strict governance of the party across the board without ceasing, so that the century-old party will continue to flourish in its self-revolution and always become the most reliable and strongest backbone of the Chinese people. We'll look at what five more years of Xi Jinping means for China and U.S. China relations. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak has been sworn in as prime minister, succeeding fellow Conservative Party member Liz Truss, who resigned her post after just six weeks on the job. Sunak was a supporter of Brexit, Britain's narrowly approved 2016 referendum on whether to exit the European Union. He comes from one of the nation's wealthiest families, with a net worth estimated at more than $800 million. He was the wealthiest member of the House of Commons. Sunak becomes Britain's first-ever prime minister of color and third prime minister in 50 days after Boris Johnson resigned amidst a series of scandals. Rishi Sunak delivered his first address as prime minister from 10 Downing Street earlier today. I will place economic stability and confidence at the heart of this government's agenda. This will mean difficult decisions to come. Rishi Sunak was a Goldman Sachs Sachs banker. Across the UK, calls are growing for a general election. The leader of Scotland's National Party, Nicola Sturgeon, said Monday the turmoil in the Conservative or Tory party showed the need for greater Scottish independence. It's going to be the fifth prime minister in the years that I've been first minister. Now, I'm only saying that to illustrate the instability and the uncertainty and the chaos that the Tories have unleashed on all of us. They have no mandate. And, you know, it is a democratic necessity that people get their say on who occupies Number 10 Downing Street. Representatives from Ethiopia's government and rebel forces in Tigray gathered in South Africa Monday for peace talks mediated by the African Union. The talks came as the United Nations warned the situation in Ethiopia is spiraling out of control with reports of widespread atrocities, including airstrikes and artillery fire that have exacerbated a humanitarian catastrophe. Some estimates put the number of dead in Tigray at 800,000 since fighting erupted less than two years ago. The U.N. says the resulting health crisis now threatens six million people. 
The UN's International Atomic Energy Agency says it will send inspectors to two Ukrainian nuclear sites after Russia claimed, without evidence, that Ukraine was preparing to deploy a radioactive device known as a dirty bomb against Russia. Ukraine has rejected the charge and plans to bring up the issue at the UN Security Council when it meets today. Meanwhile, Germany's president has arrived in Kyiv on his first visit to Ukraine since Russia invaded in February. President Frank-Walter Steinmeier's trip comes two days after Germany's ministers of defense and foreign affairs called for a dramatic boost in German and European Union aid to Ukraine's military. Here in the United States, a group of 30 progressive Congress members is calling on President Biden to pursue direct negotiations with Russia. In a letter sent Monday to President Biden, the 30 lawmakers, led by Congressional Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal, write, quote, We urge you to pair the military and economic support the United States has provided to Ukraine with a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire, unquote. The letter goes on to state, The alternative to diplomacy is protracted war, with both its attendant certainties and catastrophic and unknowable risks, unquote. A Russian court's hearing an appeal today by WNBA basketball star Brittany Griner, sentenced in August to nine years in a Russian penal colony after she pleaded guilty to carrying a small amount of marijuana oil into Russia. A ruling is expected later Tuesday. Griner is, was arrested at the Moscow airport in February when customs officials found vape cartridges containing a small amount of cannabis oil in her luggage. In Missouri, a teenage gunman shot and killed a teacher and student at the Central Visual and Performing Arts High School in South St. Louis on Monday. Four other students were shot and wounded before the gunman was shot dead by police. Police identified him as a 19-year-old recent graduate of the school. He was armed with a long gun and more than a dozen 30-round magazines. Witnesses say many more people could have died if the gunman's gun had not jammed during the assault. I was trying to run, and I couldn't run. <laughs> Me and him made eye contact, and I'm glad I made it out because his gun got jammed. In Michigan, a teenage gunman pleaded guilty on Monday to charges of first-degree murder and terrorism for a mass shooting at Oxford High School in a Detroit suburb last November. Ethan Crumbly was just 15 years old at the time of the attack, which killed four students and injured six other people. Crumbly may be called to testify against his parents, James and Jennifer Crumbly, who face manslaughter charges for allegedly giving the gun used in the shooting to their son as an early Christmas present, and for failing to intervene when their son showed clear signs of mental distress ahead of the massacre. In Florida, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis faced off against Democratic challenger Charlie Chris Monday for their first and only debate ahead of November's election. DeSantis refused to say whether he would serve a full four-year term if re-elected in November, adding to speculation he'll compete for the Republican Party's presidential nomination. Meanwhile, Charlie Chris blasted DeSantis over his anti-scientific views on gender, climate change and the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Ron, I wouldn't pat yourself on the back too much about your response to COVID. We've lost 82,000 of our fellow Floridians. And when you look at the Thanksgiving table, one of those empty seats is probably one of those people for many families watching tonight. And if we had only had the standard of other states in the United States, 40,000 of those people would still be alive, enough to fill Tropicana Stadium in St. Petersburg. That's tragic. Charlie Chris served a four-year term as governor of Florida, beginning in 2007, when he was elected on the Republican ticket. He later switched party affiliations to become a Democrat. In Pennsylvania, Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz are set to meet this evening for their first and only debate. We'll get the latest on the U.S. midterm elections later in the broadcast. The Supreme Court has put a temporary hold on a judge's order that would require South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham to appear before a Georgia grand jury to answer questions about his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. On Monday, Justice Clarence Thomas granted Senator Graham's emergency request to put the subpoena on hold temporarily, while Graham's lawyers pushed to have it quashed permanently. Democrats have demanded Justice Thomas recuse himself from cases related to the 2020 election because his wife, Ginny Thomas, spread false claims about a stolen election and lobbied federal and state officials to overturn the election results. Supreme Court rules obligate justices to withdraw themselves from cases where there's even the appearance of a conflict of interest. In Minnesota, former Minneapolis police officer J. Alexander King accepted a deal Monday that will see him plead guilty to aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter in the killing of George Floyd in May 2020. In exchange, state prosecutors agreed to drop a murder charge against King, who faces a likely 42-month prison term at a future sentencing hearing. On Monday, another former officer, Tutau, waived his right to have a jury decide his fate and will instead have a judge weigh existing evidence against him in a stipulated bench trial. Tao and King are already serving federal prison terms after they were convicted of depriving George Floyd of his constitutional rights. In the West Bank, at least six Palestinians were killed and nearly two dozen others injured following raids by Israeli forces early Tuesday morning. Al Jazeera reports one of the victims, Kusay al-Tamimi, was 19 years old and lived in the village of Nabisala, near the city of Ramallah. In related news, Amnesty International is calling on the International Criminal Court to investigate possible war crimes committed by Israel during its latest deadly assault on the Gaza Strip in August. Among those killed by Israeli forces were a four-year-old child and a teenager who is visiting her mother's grave, according to a new Amnesty report published Tuesday. Agnes Kayamard. Amnesty International Secretary General said in a statement, quote, Israel's latest offensive on Gaza lasted only three days, but that was ample time to unleash fresh trauma and destruction on the besieged population. The three deadly attacks we examined must be investigated as war crimes. All victims of unlawful attacks and their families deserve justice and reparations, Kalamard said. In Iran, over 300 people have been indicted on criminal charges for participating in the massive protests that have rocked the streets of Tehran and other cities in Iran for more than a month. 
At least four of them were charged as enemies of God, an offense that can carry the death penalty, according to Iranian officials. Despite the brutal crackdown, demonstrations continue in Tehran, sparked by the September 16th death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, while in custody of the so-called morality police. On Monday, Iranian security forces fired tear gas at a girl's high school. A clash between school staff and students reportedly broke out after the school's principal insisted on checking the students' cell phones. In Bangladesh, at least 16 people are dead and some 10 million left without power after a cyclone triggered torrential rains, heavy winds and flooding in the capital, Dhaka, and across other parts of the country. Cyclone Citrang made landfall in the coastal regions of southern and southwestern Bangladesh late Monday, destroying homes and cutting off telecommunication lines. About a million people were evacuated. This comes as scientists warn climate change is likely making cyclones more intense and frequent. North and South Korea exchange warning shots and waters off the west coast of the Korean Peninsula Monday after South Korea's military accused a North Korean merchant vessel of crossing a maritime boundary. The exchange of artillery fire came after South Korean forces joined the USS Ronald Reagan carrier battle group for U.S.-led war games of the Korean Peninsula. It follows a record pace of weapons tests carried out by North Korea this year. On Monday, South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol promised a strong military response to what he said were plans by North Korea to carry out its first nuclear weapons test in more than five years. Not only has it openly announced its intention to preemptively use nuclear weapons, it appears that preparations for a seventh nuclear test have already been completed. We will strengthen our deterrence against North Korea with overwhelming capabilities through the combined defense posture of South Korea and the United States, as well as security cooperation between South Korea, the United States and Japan, so that our people can live their daily lives with confidence. Back in the United States, public health experts are warning cases of respiratory synctiovirus, or RSV, are skyrocketing among children, overwhelming hospitals nationwide, as many are near or at capacity. RSV starts with mild cold symptoms, can lead to pneumonia and bronchiolitis, and very young children can be life-threatening in infants and young adults. And Penn State University canceled a speaking event Monday night with Gavin McGinnis, founder of the far-right group The Proud Boys, following massive backlash and student-led protests. The event was sponsored by the right-wing student organization Uncensored America and also featured right-wing Blaze TV host Alex Stein. Penn State officials accused peaceful protesters of obstruction and censorship, but then claimed to not support McGinnis and Stein's views. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. When we come back, we look at China as Xi Jinping begins a historic third term as head of the Chinese Communist Party. We'll look at what five more years of Xi means for China and U.S.-China relations.
Valley Stream by Chinese-American composer Zhou Long. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at China, where Xi Jinping has begun a historic third term as head of the Chinese Communist Party. The decision came over the weekend during the party's Congress, which is held every five years. There was also a major shakeup of the seven-member Politburo Standing Committee, which is China's most powerful governing body. China's premier, Li Keqiang, longtime rival to Xi, was demoted while four Xi loyalists were promoted. The party's top official in Shanghai, Li Chang, appears set to become China's new premier. He's a close ally of Xi. He oversaw the harsh COVID crackdown in Shanghai that lasted months. Perhaps the most dramatic moment of the Chinese Communist Party's Congress came when former president Hu Jintao was abruptly escorted out of the closing ceremony. He'd been sitting right next to Xi Jinping when two men came to escort him from his seat. Some analysts speculated the move was an assertion of Xi's dominance. Chinese state media later said it was because the former leader was not feeling well. We turn now to look more closely at the future of China as Xi Jinping begins a third term. Under Xi, China's continued decades-long effort to eradicate extreme poverty. Some 800 million people have been lifted out of poverty over the past four decades, and what U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has called, quote, the greatest anti-poverty achievement in history. But Xi has also overseen a growing surveillance state to silence dissent and target ethnic minorities, including the Uyghurs. And Xi's third term comes at a time of growing tension between the U.S. and China over Taiwan and other issues. We go now to two guests. Yacha Wang is senior China researcher at Human Rights Watch. She's in New York. And in Baltimore, Maryland, we're joined by Ho Feng Hong, professor of political economy and sociology at Johns Hopkins University. His books include Clash of Empires, From Chimerica to the New Cold War and the China Boom, Why China Will Not Rule the World. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Thanks so much for joining us. Professor Ho Feng Hong, let's begin with you. Talk about the significance of what happened this weekend. Talk about who Xi Jinping is and how his policies have changed over the years. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. And uh, what happened over the weekend is very significant in the sense that uh, though we actually uh, expect it to come uh, for a while, because in 2018, uh, Xi Jinping managed to abolish the, the five, the two five-year term limit of uh, the Chinese uh, presidents. Uh, uh, that is kind of a term limit that uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, led to impose uh, in the Chinese constitution in the 1980s because uh, after the Cultural Revolution, Deng and the Communist Party leader think that it is not good to have lifelong leader. Uh, it is good to have check and balance within the party. Uh, and Xi Jinping managed to uh, take away this term limit so that a uh, lot like his predecessors, uh, Hu Jintao and uh, Jiang Jiamin, that who each served two five terms uh, time as, as president of China, Xi can now theoretically serve uh, unlimited term that until he died and he, he can be a lifelong leader of China. So this kind of uh, abolition of the term limit as a legacy of the Deng Xiaoping era uh, is significant. So it was done in 2018, but people uh, didn't believe that uh, uh, other party elite will let him actually 
do it to have another the third uh, five-year term, but he managed to do it. It's uh, just proven over the weekend that he managed to do it. Not only that, uh, but also he managed to put all of his own uh, loyalists, absolute loyalists, in the Politburo Standing Committee. Uh, uh, so the, the people from other factions, for example, some people who tip to be in the Politburo Standing Committee or the Politburo who belong to the Hu Jintao, the uh, previous president faction, uh, were not there. Um, so uh, it seems uh, that in the next five years, at least, uh, the Xi Jinping has established his own absolute uh, personal control of everything in China without much check and balance within the party. And talk about what happened this weekend. Do you think that was deliberately staged to remove the former leader sitting next to Xi Jinping as a message that he was consolidating his power? Or, in fact, do you think it is what uh, China said, what the government said, that he wasn't feeling well? Definitely that uh, in this kind of a carefully choreographed uh, rituals of the Communist Party, uh, it is unimaginable. There's this kind of uh, accident or incident that is uh, totally uh, out of um, nowhere. Um, and of course, there is a possibility that he actually feel unwell. But now more video footage uh, uh, emerged from the Spanish and the Singaporean TV showing what happened uh, before he was uh, pre uh, former president Hu Jintao was escorted away from the Congress, it didn't seem like he is unwell at all. That uh, it uh, appeared in those video footage that he tried to open a folder with some documents, and uh, Li Zhansu, who is uh, sitting next to him, tried to prevent him from looking at the document and seize the folder. And then Xi Jinping called somebody to come and uh, take him away. And initially. He appeared to be reluctant to leave, and then uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the guards uh, and, 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 and the person behind Hu Jintao uh, seems to be using some kind of uh, force to take him away, and then he eventually um, left the Congress uh, reluctantly, and then uh, after he uh, decided to leave, and he walked quite fast, and then he can walk on his own, and, and it didn't seem to me that uh, he's actually really feeling unwell, and I don't think it is the real reason that he left. And then uh, why Xi Jinping called somebody to escort him or even fo really forcefully take him away from the Congress that I think Xi Jinping uh, move is uh, carefully considered and calculated to show that he can do whatever he wants and he can even take out uh, a former president. Uh, uh, from the Congress uh, in front of the camera. And of course, that uh, people are speculating that I think it is reasonable to suppose so that Hu Jintao might not be very happy about the, the so-called election result of the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee without any of his loyalists there. Uh, and uh, Xi Jinping might worry that he might give a face or a lot raising hands or a lot clapping hands. Uh, in the final section, so uh, it is a possibility that Xi Jinping deliberately uh, asked somebody to take him out to prevent this embarrassment. Yacho Wang of Human Rights Watch, your response to um, what has taken place and the significance of uh, Xi Jinping beginning this historic third term. 
Well, I think,、uh, you know, we expect this to, to happen because in 2018, the term limit for the president was limited. But it was still a very depressing moment because it became a fact. You know, I talked to friends and families back in China. People were depressed because in the past 10 years since she came to power, the Horrendous human rights violations Xi Jinping committed was just striking. And now he's going to have another five years at least. So I think people are expecting things can go worse. So people are quite depressed. But at the same time, you know, people now are very angry with the zero COVID policy. People are, you know, protesting in China with a guy, you know, in Beijing held a Uh, posted a banner on a bridge, and people were responding to that. So, I, on the one hand, I see people are unhappy, depressed. On the other hand, I see people are waking up and they wanted to, you know, say, "I want freedom. I want human rights. I want to, you know, to decide how、um, I'm governed by my government." Professor Ho Feng Hung.、Uh, She's、uh, human rights record. What that means, and your assessment、uh, of his rule and the effect he's had on the Chinese people, and your response to the UN Secretary General、um, Antonio Guterres、uh, talking about this,、uh, what he called,、uh, you know, monumental、uh, taking on largest anti-poverty program in history. Yeah, definitely. That、uh, Xi Jinping,、uh, like his predecessor Hu Jintao, is a kind of a brutal repressor of human rights, and uh, uh, it's not that、uh, human rights violations started in Xi Jinping. Actually, in the in the Jiang Zemin era, in the Hu Jintao era, we already see a lot of crackdown、uh, in in the Han majority area and also the Lan Han minority regions. But Xi Jinping, but just raise it to the new level. Uh, as we now f-、uh, very much aware of what happened to the Uyghurs in in, in Xinjiang, it is、uh, happening under Xi Jinping watch.、Uh, so, in terms of、um, the repression of human rights, the Communist Party,、uh, whether it is collective leadership or it is one-man dictatorship,、uh, it has been pretty much the same. And what Xi Jinping、uh, brought in、uh, something new compared to the Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin era is that he even. Uh, Cracked down brutally on his、uh, allies, his other elite within the Communist Party, because、um, after the,、uh, Xi Jinping became the president, he launched its、uh, anti-corruption campaign, and then uh, many uh, elites, even senior officials and private business、uh, people, are uh, uh, disappear or the, mysteriously commit suicide or taken to jail under the name of anti-corruption campaign. Uh, and many people will see that、uh, it is a lot exciting anti-corruption campaign. It is more like a purge.、Um, so、uh, in China nowadays, not only uh, uh, dissidents and 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 minorities、uh, are afraid, but also some elite and middle class, and also Xi Jinping double down on、uh, expanding the state sectors,、uh, state companies, and making、uh, private companies and foreign companies uh, uh, life more difficult in making money in. In China and keeping their wealth and、uh, jeopardizing their private property as well.、Uh, so、uh, in the next five years, at the very least, that、uh, this kind of、uh, draconian policy that I、uh, call some kind of、uh, law of Koreanization of China's politics and economy、uh, is going to double down and is going to getting worse. 
Um, and Yacha Wang, the significance of Li Keqiang, a longtime rival to Xi, uh, he's demoted while his loyalist Li Chang looks like he's about to be China's new premier. You mentioned the crackdown in Shanghai. But talk about the significance of the COVID crackdown, what it actually felt and looked like in uh, this massive city. Well, I mean, it lasted from April to June for two months that, you know, the city of 20 million people are confined to their homes. And as a result, uh, you know, people had huge difficulties to uh, have food delivered to them and to access uh, to hospitals. And I've heard stories from people whose parent has a heart attack or other emergency, and they couldn't leave their uh, uh, apartment complex, or even they managed to leave their apartment complex. They couldn't actually get into the hospital. Um, so there are people who died as a result of uh, uh, of the lack of access to hospital facilities. So, and then there are the people who were, had, had no food. And then there are the people who lost their jobs and they couldn't pay to get food delivered. So the, 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 the human rights violations associated with this draconian lockdown was massive. And then, you know, it ended. And the people say, you know, Li Chang, the, uh, the, the party secretary of Shanghai is ultimately responsible for this. Now this guy was promoted. So he can see, you know, she is rewarding uh, people who are loyal to his policy rather than rewarding uh, people who are good for the, the, the public. Um, Professor Ho Feng Hung, I mean, relations with China are, if not in an all-time low, extremely bad right now. And I'm wondering if you can comment on uh, what is taking place. Uh, in one of the pieces you wrote, you said the dynamics of U.S.-China rivalry is an inter-imperial rivalry driven by inter-capitalist competition. Competition for the world market could soon turn into intensifying clashes of spheres of influence and even war. So you're not talking about uh, the difference of ideologies. In fact, you're talking about a similar capitalist ideology. Yes, indeed. That uh, I myself is not quite um, um, supportive of the, the framing of the U.S.-China rivalry as a Liu Cold War. Uh, it is a catchphrase uh, used a lot of time nowadays uh, indicating that the difference uh, between China and U.S. is fundamentally ideological and political. I think, of course, that uh, this difference is real. It's very true. It's, there's a large difference, but it is not the uh, necessary and sufficient conditions that lead to this uh, rivalry between the U.S. and China today, because right after the 1989 massacre, uh, human rights is already a huge concern about China in the discussion in the U.S., and many people already uh, are very unhappy about what is going on in China with regard to human rights and Tibet, Xinjiang. It is all this old, old problem that uh, in the 1990s, but in the 1990s, U.S.-China relations get more and more harmonious regardless of this human rights difference and political system difference. Um, what uh, is different uh, now uh, in comparison to the 1990s and 2000s is that uh, back in the 1990s and 2000s, transnational corporation, American corporation, they are very happy making money in China. 
uh, they have a good time in China. And so they don't care about the human rights, they don't care about labor rights, they don't care about all kind of political difference between U.S. and China. But uh, so far as they are making big money, they are finding it very profitable in China. So they lobby the U.S. government, the U.S. Congress, uh, to have a more amicable and harmonious relation with China whenever there is uh, concern about uh, labor right, human right violation uh, uh, in China, in the Congress, they will lobby against those bills uh, in the 1990s and 2000s. So the U.S. corporations um, uh, have been uh, kind of uh, ambassadors of the, of, the, of the Chinese government to soften U.S. policy uh, on China, uh, even though geopolitically and in terms of human rights, political system and ideology, there's already a vast difference. What happened after 2000, around 2010, is that uh, uh, China economy um, started to lose steam. Uh, the economic pie no longer expand that fast. And then uh, the market share in, in, in the, the U.S. corporation market share in China start to stagnate or even decline. Uh, because the Chinese uh, government is helping the Chinese state enterprise and Chinese private enterprise to expand the market share in China and around the world in the Belt and Road country at the expense of U.S. corporations. So it is a turning point that uh, U.S. corporations rarely individually uh, voice their concern about this uh, business environment in China. Uh, of course, there's also other problems like intellectual property theft, uh, and unfair competition and unfair enforcement of regulations, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, they don't voice this concern individually, but in the survey, the anonymous survey conducted by, for example, the American Chamber of Commerce in China and U.S.-China Business Council and all these kind of uh, uh, association, business association in the U.S. all show that the American business in China situation is deteriorating. Uh, they are uh, looking for diversifying their investment, uh, and they no longer uh, eager to lobby uh, in, in, uh, in the names of Chinese interests. Uh, so it is why the geopolitical difference uh, between U.S. and China, um, the human rights and political difference between U.S. and China can uh, now prevail and um, uh, influence uh, uh, largely that, uh, the direction of U.S.-China policy. So fundamentally, it is a kind of a intercapitalist competition between U.S. corporation and China corporation in the Chinese market and in the Bell and Road and other developing countries' market that lead to this deterioration of U.S.-China relations. I wanted to go to the flashpoint, Taiwan. During his opening address at the Communist Party Congress, Xi Jinping lauded his government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, addressed the economy, China's military and foreign policy. He also praised Beijing's crackdown on Hong Kong, claiming Hong Kong shifted from chaos to governance. President Xi also addressed the issue of Taiwan, which has become this flashpoint between China and the U.S. The resolution of the Taiwan issue is a matter for the Chinese ourselves to decide. We insist on striving for the prospect of peaceful reunification with the greatest sincerity and with the greatest effort. However, we are not committed to abandoning the use of force, and we reserve the option of taking all necessary measures. Yacho Wang, your response? Well, I think, you know, um, yes, I think it's obvious that uh, there's more aggressive rhetoric coming from the Chinese government uh, on the Taiwan issue. And I know people in Taiwan are nervous. But at the same time, I see, you know, people in Taiwan, are, they are very protective of the freedom, of the human rights they have. And they organize themselves together and they wanted to retain that freedom. They're 
alert of the situation and they are active in, you know, pushing back the kind of pressure coming from uh, China. And also, I'm saying that, uh, you know, governments around the world, including the U.S. government, also, you know, doing more to support the vibrant democracy in Taiwan. So, yes, China has become more aggressive. They are more, uh, you know, hostile uh uh, rhetoric, but at the same time, I think I also see more pushback from Taiwan and the uh, democracies around the world. Professor Ho Feng um, Young, your response? Yes, actually, the, I think there are two sides of the, the the question. On the one hand, uh, China is closing closer toward using military force uh, to forcefully forcefully take Taiwan. On the one hand, because uh, the zero COVID policy. Uh, and many things it did, uh, that Beijing did over Hong Kong, uh, show that uh, it is no longer a regime that uh, prioritizes economic growth and economic prosperity, and, and, and they prioritize national security and control, absolute control of the Communist Party. Uh, even uh, when it comes to sacrificing the economy, they will do it. So on that regard, that uh, Beijing has less restraint when it decides to attack Taiwan. But on the other hand, I think uh, the immediate uh, military threat uh, uh, is not there yet because you look at, for example, Russia military action against invasion uh, against Ukraine. It, there is a path uh, from uh, the Russian foreign, foreign intervention and overseas military deployment uh, in Georgia in 2008, uh, Syria, uh, and also the, the Ukraine in 2014. So. Uh, this dictator logic is that they tried uh, smaller scale intervention. If they succeed, they get uh, more confident, more confident, and then full scale invasion. And you look at China, if the leadership is still rational, they will look back to their military history. They will find that the last time China uh, fought a war overseas it was 1979 against Vietnam. And the last time China actually have a serious military mobilization of this military, um, of this army is 1989, which is against its own people. Uh, so the, China has not actually used the military against uh, uh, any overseas target uh, for decades. So I don't think it will easily jump from zero to an all-out invasion of Taiwan. But I think that uh, Beijing might try to uh, uh, talk up the military rhetoric, the threat, and also might even do some limited military action to take some outlying islands of Taiwan or some South China Sea Taiwan now controlled by the Taiwan government uh, as a kind of a threat or even a parcel blockage of Taiwan uh, to create a kind of a tense uh, situation to influence Taiwan election, to influence uh, what uh, the Taiwan people might want to elect for. Uh, if uh, Beijing managed to get some of its allies uh, or even its agent uh, elected in Taiwan through election, then that uh, the pro-Beijing government can can sign agreement with Beijing and do a lot of things uh, that U.S. cannot find a reason to intervene or to, to deter. Uh, but I'm confident that uh, the Taiwan people uh, is very clear what is going on, and they have a will and they have the capacity um, to defend the vibrant democracy, which is a kind of a miracle. And it is why the Beijing find that Taiwan is a fawn on its back, because it is an ethnic, ethnic Chinese democracy and, demo, uh, and, and liberal society, which is very vibrant. Uh, and it shows that actually democracy um, can work in Chinese society that uh, actually contradict uh, Beijing's uh, propaganda that actually democracy is not suitable for Chinese people. Uh, so uh, I'm confident that the Taiwan people 
uh, will have the will and capacity and, and alertness uh, to defend itself. Ho Fang Hung, we want to thank you for being with us, sociology professor at Johns Hopkins University. And thank you so much to Yacha Wang of Human Rights Watch. When we come back, midterms are less than two weeks away. Democrats are facing tight races. We'll speak with former Green Party presidential candidate Ralph Nader and author Mark Green about their project Winning America and their new report Crushing the GOP 2022. Stay with us in 30 seconds. Chicago. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. With midterm elections in the United States two weeks away, Democrats are facing tight races, even in places like New York State, where they've been the dominant party for two decades. New York's Democratic governor, Kathy Hochul, has a single-digit lead over her Republican challenger, Lee Zeldin, a Trump acolyte. The two have their first and only debate tonight. Meanwhile, Democratic Congressmember Sean Patrick Maloney of New York, chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and a five-term incumbent, is facing a stiff challenge, his race now considered a toss-up by analysts. Nationwide, 35 Senate races are up for grabs. Republican-held Senate seats targeted by Democrats are extremely close in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, where Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman faces Republican Mehmet Oz in their first and only debate tonight. For more, we're joined by two guests who write about this and so much more in their new report titled Crushing the GOP 2022. Mark Green, political organizer, author, Ralph Nader, legendary consumer advocate, corporate critic, four-time presidential candidate Ralph Nader. Together, they formed a project called Winning America. As The Washington Post noted in a recent profile of Ralph Nader, for the first time in his 88 years, Ralph Nader's campaigning for the Democrats, not against them. Ralph Nader is the author of many books, including Breaking Through Power, It's Easier Than We Think. And Mark Green just wrote an op-ed for the New York Daily News, headlined, Democrats Closing Pitch, The Party Needs to Sharpen Its Message Now. We welcome both to Democracy Now! Ralph Nader, let's begin with you. Um, as you join us on the phone from your home in Connecticut, um, talk about what you feel the Democrats are doing wrong right now. Well, what they've got to do is uh, uh, authenticate their message and their rhetoric where people live work and raise their families, often called kitchen table issues. And they've got to compare and contrast life under the authoritarian, bigoted, corporate indentured GOP with life under the Democrats. For example, 20, 25 million people will get a, a raise to $15 minimum wage under the Democrats. Uh, the GOP is against that. The assault on children by the GOP is absolutely stunning, from not using available Medicaid funds to insure them, to exposing them to hazardous pesticides, and denying paid family leave and sick leave. Uh, the GOP is against that. Uh, the $300 a month 
child tax credit to 58 million children in our country, cutting poverty, uh, child poverty by a third, uh, was suspended because of GOP opposition in uh, January. And it continues. Uh, voter, uh, voters will be more repressed under the, the GOP. Uh, precinct workers will be more intimidated under the GOP. They're trying to steal the election while they accuse the Democrats of stealing the 2020 election. Uh, in, in area after area, uh, the, the, the Democrats are not rebutting and taking the offensive, which is what politics is all about in an electoral campaign. Uh, the GOP is the party of anxiety, fear, and dread. You can document that from A to Z, uh, and uh, they're not being adequately rebutted. Midnight campaigning, over 25 million workers work the midnight shift. They're ignored by candidates. What the candidates now in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, Texas have got to do is campaign all night for all the workers who keep the country going while we're asleep and recognize them, respect them. Uh, they're hospital workers, nursing home, police, fire, emergency people, people working in the midnight shift in, in factories. So this report, winningamerica.net, you can get the whole report, is full of the best presentations by 20, uh, 24 civic leaders and advocates who know how to talk to people. They don't stratify people left, right, conservative, liberal, when they advance their causes. All of this is presented to the Democratic candidates and the Democratic Party free. The question is uh, whether they will break through their political and media consultant force field, which keeps them from having input from civic groups, and uh, find all the ways that are very poll-tested, by the way, uh, that will grab the attention of liberal and conservative voters alike. A lot of the issues are boiled down in this report under uh, a two-page card, in effect. Your choice in 2022 Compare the Democrats and GOP, and the GOP is against every one of these, whether it's minimum wage, strengthening gun safety laws, taxing the wealthiest firms and the super-rich, guaranteeing freedom and equality for women, ending the dark money in campaigns, providing Medicare for all, raising frozen Social Security benefits, restoring voter rights, funding child care and sick leave, fighting climate violence with renewable energy, reducing skyrocketing drug prices, and increasing funding to prosecute corporate crooks. All of those are opposed by the GOP. So politics is a practice in contrast, and the Democrats have got to get with it and learn how to communicate, especially with millions of blue-collar workers who have deserted the Democratic Party and broken the FDR coalition that won so many uh, elections. It seems winningamerica.net. It seems, Ralph, that um, Democrats are, in some cases, more afraid of being called socialist uh, than they are afraid of uh, than they are afraid of Republicans. Can you respond to that? Yeah, well, that's that's why they ha they've got to learn how to rebut, and it's not too late in the next two weeks to do that. that when they're accused of being socialists, there are three rebuttals. One, oh, you Republicans are against socialism. I, I know why you're saying that, because you hate Medicare. You hate the post office. You hate Medicaid. 
you hate public drinking water departments. Uh, you, you hate public schools. Uh, you hate Social Security. That's why you're talking socialism. But you are really corporate socialists. You want to bail out every corporation of any size. You, you want to uh, subsidize, uh, hand out all kinds of stuff to corporations in a mockery of your f- so-called free market f- philosophy. The same with uh, defunding the police, the 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 Republicans are defunding the corporate crime police. And let me tell you, when you're talking about death, injury, and disease, uh, corporate crime towers over street crime. Just think of the opiates and uh, almost one million Americans who've died from the criminal uh, promotion of the opiates uh, throughout the country. And these corporate crooks got away with it. You get a 90% poll on prosecuting corporate crooks and increasing the, the corporate crime enforcement budget. And the same at the street level. The Democrats are for community policing. They want safer guns. They don't want that many guns on the streets. The Republicans are on the other side on that. This report, winningamerica.net, is full of the best thoughts of these civic leaders who have helped change America, but have been excluded by the political media consultants surrounding these Democratic candidates because they want the 15% commission on TV, TV ads, and they don't know a ground game from anything. They're not interested in a ground game to get the vote out and to get more voter registration because they don't get a commission on that. Well, Mark Green, um, you have run for office. You're a keen observer of all these races around the country right now, uh, as one after another is now being called, um, uh, you know, a toss-up. What do you think the Democrats are failing to do, and particularly talk about the focus on Donald Trump? Well, thank you, Amy, and thank you, Ralph. Uh, Ralph just— as he has throughout his entire public life, been comprehensive about how the Republicans are blocking Democrats from delivering on um, their wallets and their rights. That would be a great starting point at the, st- at the beginning of a midterm election that ultimately is about democracy versus fascism. But now in the last two weeks, um, y- y- you got to know how to be rhetorically muscular against the party, the Republicans, who don't hesitate to call Democrats not only socialists, but communists and murderers. And so at this point, uh, Democrats can't flinch at being blunt and reducing their campaigns to one, two, or three major phrases and concepts, because like it or not, five-second voters regrettably, have responded to these loaded phrases, so woke, cancel, uh, grooming. Uh, Democrats have better policies. How the hell are they losing to a party with apparently better messages? And so uh, Biden began, Biden, who's been a very good president and wanted to be and has been a uniter, has to rise to the occasion. Not only the civic and public interest groups that Ralph is talking about in our report, but, but the public hears because the White House has a, a big decibel count when the president says it, then others follow. So there are three uh, topic sentences, basically. The, the, the overall is that the GOP are dangerous extremists who are stealing our freedoms and our wallets. What does that mean? 
One, Social Security. Public understands that. You don't have to spend a lot of money and time. They want to uh, have annual budgets rather than mandatory funding for Social Security, which means they're going to cut Social Security to you who've been paying in uh, for your entire uh, work life. Second, they're the party of violence and corruption. It's not just January 6th, which they explain away, but... Uh, their refusal to have adequate gun laws, so we have far more gun murders leading to higher uh, crime, and their assaults, the the MAGA mobs hounding local officials, and uh, so they deploy violence. And while they uh, uh, talk about the language of liberty, they want to ban books and abortion and many voters and trans and marriage equality. So it's Social Security and they talk liberty, uh, but they really are uh, for violence and lawlessness. And third, democracy. Democracy now. I think that's a good phrase. Amy, you've been doing this your whole life, Ralph and I, as, as well. The issue is not merely they want to reduce voting, because that's the only way they can win, being a minority party with bad ideas, connect democracy and economy. Bob Kuttner, an economic writer, in his American Prospect and now in our volume, explains, you know, if you reduce the number of uh, minority voters, then, and then only then, can the majority win when it comes to, gee, why don't we have secure Social Security? Why don't we have more a higher minimum wage? Why don't we have a more child tax credits, which halves poverty among children? So if you focus voters on three issues where the Republicans are blocking progress and are engaged in violent acts and are undermining a democracy, well, extremism is not patriotism. And they have to uh, mobilize all these issues that Ralph listed in ways that the public, uh, the swing public, those who pay little attention to campaigns until now, to get them to turn out uh, and vote. Ralph, uh, let me ask Ralph about the role of the media in this campaign, your assessment. Well, you know, if you talk about the the main uh, newspapers, the New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera, they're giving huge play to these crazed right-wing groups that nobody ever heard of. They put them on page one. They make them into a big act. And these groups love it. They use it for fundraising. Whoever heard of the Claremont Institute, for example? Uh, they give huge publicity to J.D. Vance. Why take a chance with Vance? And he's a flip-flopper. He's a zigzagger. But the only recently gave attention to Tim Ryan, his opponent for the U.S. Senate in Ohio. Uh, they're constantly publicizing the right-wing people and groups and giving the impression there's nothing going on on the progressive side, that there, 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 there isn't voter registration drives by citizen groups and student groups on campuses. Uh, and uh, this is very damaging because uh, they're giving publicity to the very groups and political forces, the GOP, the authoritarian, dictatorial, corporatist GOP, that's going to go after freedom of press, not just criticize them the way Trump does. They're going after freedom of press. 
so it's too, extremely short-sighted. WinningAmerica.net should be page one in the New York Times and Washington Post uh, and not be ignored. It's 24 groups all over the country uh, who have who know what they're talking about, and they're not getting any any coverage. This is really the first national program on WinningAmerica.net. Uh, people, it's 80 pages long, chock full of ways to landslide this Republican Party. Imagine what FDR and Truman uh, and Lyndon Johnson would have done to this GOP. Instead, they're, they're uh, slightly ahead in some of the polls in the congressional races. And their uh, uh, positions are routinely against workers, all workers. They don't want workplace safety rules enforced. They don't want wor- uh, worker pensions protected from corporate looting. Uh, they don't want workers to have a living wage. They don't want all workers to have health insurance. Why are workers voting for them? It's the default of the Democratic Party. Uh, this party doesn't know how to win. And Ralph, do you think do you're you the th- only ones standing defending our republic? So we're going to show you how to win. Do you think President Biden should run again, Ralph? Uh, well, I, now you're getting into the presidential races here. It's, it's far too speculative uh, to, to say one way or another. I don't believe uh, he, he would be too old to run. But we, we need uh, uh, a whole new generation of political and civic leaders who understand what the Constitution is all about, uh, how to end empire, uh, how to put corporations as our servants, not our masters, and uh, how to develop access to justice and, and fight corporate judges. Biden's done a good job on trying to fight uh, corporate judges in the nominations that he's put uh, to the U.S. Senate. Ralph Nader, um, you are 88 years old. You've campaigned as an independent and a green uh, for your throughout your political life. You ran for president four times. Why now throw in your lot with the Democrats? Well, this is clearly the most dangerous political movement uh, since the Civil War. Uh, the, the GOP is, is under uh, the corporate fascist Trump's uh, thumb. He's bred a whole breed of many Trumpsters who are getting far too much publicity compared to their opponents. Uh, and everything we fought for, Amy, for over 50 years uh, is at stake here. They're ready to do everything but tear seatbelts out of cars. Uh, they want to let Wall Street uh, lie, cheat, and steal with impunity. They want to make sure cor- the corporate crime wave continues to roll across America against workers and consumers and the elderly and children. Uh, so this is an order of magnitude we've never seen before. Uh, we've never seen a party so we have deliberately 15 seconds, trying to Ralph. repress the vote. We have 10 seconds. Pardon? We have 10 seconds. It- Yeah, we've never seen a party literally trying to repress the vote, uh, miscount the vote, purge the vote, intimidate precinct worker volunteers, and steal elections. They've actually basically said uh, any election we lose is because it's been stolen from us. That's the word of a dictatorship. Party. We have to There's leave it there, Ralph. We want to thank you so much for being with us. Legendary consumer advocate and Mark Green, political organizer and activist. I'm Amy Goodman. Stay safe.